You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My name is Wilkie Collins, and my guess, since I plan to delay the publication of this document for at least a century and a quarter beyond the date of my demise, is that you do not recognize my name. Some say that I'm a gambling man, and those that say so are correct. So my wager with you, dear reader, would be that you have neither read nor heard of any of my books or plays. Perhaps you British or American peoples a hundred and twenty-five or so years of my future do not speak English at all. Perhaps you dress like Hottentots, live in gaslighted caves, travel around in balloons, and communicate by telegraph thoughts, unhindered by any spoken or written language. Even so, I would wager my current fortune, such as it is, and all future royalties from my plays and novels, such as they may be, on the fact that you do remember the name and books and plays and invented characters of my friend and former collaborator, a certain Charles Dickens. So this true story shall be about my friend, or at least about the man who was once my friend, Charles Dickens, and about the Staplehurst accident that took away his peace of mind, his health, and some might whisper, his sanity. This true story will be about Charles Dickens's final five years and about his growing obsession during that time with a man, if man he was, named Drood, as well as with murder, death, corpses, crypts, mesmerism, opium, ghosts, and the streets and alleys of that black-biled lower bowel of London that the writer always called, quote, my Babylon or, quote, the great oven. In this manuscript, which, as I have explained, for legal reasons as well as for reasons of honor, I intend to seal away from all eyes for more than 100 years after his death and after my own, I shall answer the question which perhaps no one else alive in our time knew to ask. Did the famous and lovable and honorable Charles Dickens plot to murder an innocent person and dissolve away his flesh in a pit of caustic lime and secretly inter what was left of him, mere bones and a skull, in the crypt of an ancient cathedral that was an important part of Dickens's own childhood? And did Dickens then scheme to scatter the poor victim's spectacles, rings, stick pins, shirt studs, and pocket watch in the River Thames? And if so, or even if Dickens only dreamed he did these things, what part did a very real phantom named Drood have in the onset of such madness? Dan Simmons is the Hugo Award-winning author of science fiction novels that include Hyperium, Ilium, and Olympos. The Joe Kurtz mystery novels, including Hard Case, Hard Freeze, and Hard as Nails, horror novels that include Summer of Night, Children of the Night, and A Winter Haunting, the historical novels The Crook Factory and The Terror. His new book is Drood. Thank you for joining me, Dan. It's always a pleasure, Rick. Dan, you have two really wonderful characters in this novel, at the center of this novel, and we get to know them in ways that I just never, ever conceived of. So tell us about your own exploration, first of the character of Charles Dickens. I mean, you have a really great 
phrase in here early on where he talks about himself as a child with the shadows of books in his head. Ah, I've almost forgotten that. Uh, many of us readers and almost all writers are throughout their lives into old age still children with the shadows of books in their heads. But I suspect Charles Dickens more than most. Um, his childhood was obviously pretty much like David Copperfield's, his favorite book, his favorite character of his own. And Copperfield was an abused boy, not just when he was sent off to the blacking factory that Dickens was actually sent to when his father became bankrupt. But he felt unappreciated and unloved much of his childhood. So those books became central to his life, including A Thousand One Arabian Nights. So we have a man who's haunted uh, by the great books and the children's books that he read at a very young age when he had no friends, when his family was dysfunctional, when his father was a disappointment to everyone, including the little boy who wanted to worship him. And then he went out to to write even better books himself. As he became a writer, one of the things that's interesting, when we, in this book, that's it's totally fascinating, when I think of Charles Dickens, I think of his great novels, um, you know, the, from the Pickwick Papers through David Copperfield, Great Expectations, um, but he did a lot more writing than just those novels. And, and in fact, uh, he started out um, as a, interested in being an actor. He was. And, and throughout his life, he continued uh, pursuing that passion of being an actor and continued to um, write plays on the side. Or when he got more famous and had less time, he talked to my narrator, my unreliable narrator, Wilkie Collins, his friend and sometimes collaborator, into doing a play, which Dickens rewrote, and Dickens starred in it in front of the Queen. That was a response to the um, uh, the Sir John Franklin expedition, which I also wrote a book about, where 129 men disappeared in the Arctic. And evidence was coming back that uh, they had eaten each other. And this was totally unacceptable to Charles Dickens. Englishmen do not eat Englishmen. So he wrote and starred in a play about that, showing the hero, the Sir John Franklin character, not as a fool who got his men killed, but as a great hero. Now, <laughs> uh, I'm wondering how much of the, the research that you did for your previous novel, The Terror, how much did that play into this, and did that help uh, bring this book about? That would make sense to me that after a few years researching the Franklin expedition, writing the terror, that I would then find the Dickens' reaction to that lost expedition, which I did. Of course, everyone in England reacted to it as much like 9-11 for Americans. Everyone had a reaction. But in truth, I decided to write the Dickens book a decade before I wrote the terror. Well, what made you decide to write about Dickens? Were you, were you a fan of his? No, I was an anti-fan of his. In ninth grade, I had a uh, small but lethal, portly little teacher named Mrs. Lane. Oh, I can't, I can't name real names on the radio, so you didn't hear that. Mrs. Lane made uh, she crammed great expectations down our throats at a time then when most of us didn't want to read it. And over the years, I avoided Dickens. So this was a sort of rapprochement. Well, how did you get back to being interested in Dickens? I mean, once you're put off, you're put off. That's true, but uh, you're also you also haven't read much of him. You know, other than the obligatory David Copperfield or whatever, I didn't read much Dickens and didn't study him in college. And even after I decided to become a writer, just Dickens was, uh, as E.M. Forster thought, Dickens is beneath the radar. You know, no real writers, serious writers don't pay attention to Dickens. And then you slowly realize as a professional writer that you're always in the shadow of Dickens, not just because of his gift, but because he was the first great professional writer. Well, tell us how he became a professional writer. I bet you know some of the story. He uh, 
he was determined not to be his father. So he was going to build on his gifts, and his gifts were storytelling. But he actually studied uh, shorthand to become a parliamentary reporter, writing down the long, boring speeches. And that's how he made his bones. And then he started writing short sketches about London. And those transmogrified into the Pickwick Papers, which led on to his novels. He was also, he wasn't just a novelist, he was also a publisher. And this is something that really interested me, uh, that you talk about quite a bit about in this book. Uh, he uh, published magazines and, and was uh, his own editor. Yes. Which explains some of the length of his work. Tell us a little bit about his magazines and, and the part they play in, 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 his, in his book and in yours. Well, they were so important because that was the way most people read his books, through serialized versions in the magazines. And the same with my narrator, Wilkie Collins. They always had a next installment due, and they were always behind schedule on what they were working on. But that level of professionalism is so hard for us to understand today. Very few writers write in, you know, 36 installments that have to be there at the end of the month for a waiting public. But Dickens did it all. I mean, he deserved to be the superstar that he was because he was publisher. He was editor. He did everything but illustrate, and he, he showed the illustrator exactly what to do. He was uh, the first writer to make a, who could have made a living just on his readings, which were so phenomenal we can't even understand what they were like. That They play a big part in my book, Druid, because his readings were a form of performance art that have been unequaled since, I mean, when he, wrote, when he read and performed The Murder of Nancy by Bill Sykes, and he did it in 70-some cities, traveling every day at a time he was terrified of rail travel for reasons we'll probably talk about. When he did that reading, it was not uncommon for a dozen or more women in the audience to faint. And strong men just back from years fighting in India would not be able to stand. And Dickens used to send home these letters pointing out how many women he'd got that night. You know, 24 fainted tonight. That was a good night. Your narrator, Wilkie Collins, although less accomplished literarily, is a fascinating narrator, and I really enjoyed reading this book. He really makes the book a, a joy to read. Uh, tell us a little bit about get who he was and how you had to get into his mind. Oh, getting into his mind. It's getting out that's a problem now, even a year after the book's finished. I'm amazed going on tour to find out how many people are Wilkie Collins fans. I assume that he was forgotten, that he'd been... Um, put in the dustbin of literary history, but no, he has lots of fans at fan clubs, and I'm irritating most of them. But Wilkie was a collaborator and friend of Charles Dickens. And uh, as a collaborator, uh, he brought out some of Dickens's wilder instincts. And to tell you the truth, as a friend, he did as well. This was about the time Dickens threw his, Dickens's wife of 22 years out of the house, kept nine of the 10 children, let the oldest boy go with his wife, but just tossed her out. And Dickens was the image of the happy English family. Wilkie Collins, on the other hand, was a rake. He lived with one mistress, well, which, whom he refused to marry, while he was having children with another mistress he kept down the street. So Wilkie was a wild child for Victorian 1860s London. But to me, he's the ultimate unreliable narrator. He, I, I love unreliable narrators. Most novelists do. But Wilkie had three things going for him that made him perfect for this book and for anybody seeking an unreliable narrator. First, he was nuts. From the time he was a kid, he was sure there was another Wilkie out there, even when he was a child. He knew there was a doppelganger Wilkie, uh, another form of himself. And that other Wilkie, according to Wilkie Collins, 
actually wrote parts of his uh, best-selling books, The Woman in White and The Moonstone. And one of the reasons that the other Wilkie had to step in and write the, in fact, they were the best chapters of The Moonstone, was the second reason why I had to use Wilkie Collins, which was Wilkie was a serious drug addict. And his drug of choice was laudanum, which was every housewife's drug of choice in the 1800s. You could get the opium at the corner chemist, and you put a few drops in wine, and that's your laudanum. But Wilkie was using, by the time we meet him in the 1860s, Wilkie was using so much laudanum daily that a doctor acquaintance of his said, you could kill this much, would kill every man at this table. And there were over 25 people at the table at this banquet. And what Wilkie hadn't told the doctor was that was his morning dose of laudanum. And then he would take an even larger afternoon dose, and then to get to sleep he'd use morphine. So this is a crazy man who is using more drugs than we can imagine. And the third reason I had to use him, sorry this answer's so long, but I love Wilkie Collins. The third reason I had to use Wilkie is that he was Salieri to Dickens's Mozart. And we know in real life, uh, I'm speaking of the play, Peter Schaeffer's brilliant play and movie, Amadeus, where Salieri becomes so jealous of Mozart, he plans to murder Mozart. In real life, that didn't happen. It's all a conceit for the play. We know that in real life, Mozart chose Salieri to train his, Mozart's children in music. And you don't do that unless you respect the other man. But Salieri was mediocre. And Wilkie Collins, I'm sorry for all the fans, but I, I maintain that Wilkie Collins is the quintessence of mediocrity. And yet he has to spend years in close association with the great genius of his century, of his age, of all of England, of all of literary history. And when, you, when mediocrity spends that much time around genius, you really want to murder the person. And that's where Wilkie ends up. This novel is so wonderful because after that gripping opening that that you read for us, um, it really keeps up the pace all the way through, and it it also um, has so many interesting literary echoes and, and uh, back back flashes. So let's talk a little bit about your novel. It starts off in the literally in the middle of of the action. So tell us about the true incident that you write about here that fired off this novel, both uh, in terms of plot and, I think, in terms of inspiration for you. It was inspiration, because all the biographies I'd read of Dickens mention 9 June 1865. They have to, because at that time he was in a terrible railway accident at a place called Staplehurst. He and his mistress and his mistress's mother whether she was a physical mistress, we don't know, but she was certainly the focus of all his romantic attention and the main reason that he had told his wife that it was over and go away. He and Ellen Turner and her mother were coming back from France, and they'd taken the Folkestone tidal train to London in the afternoon of 9 June 1865, and the men were working on the trestle, and they removed the rails and part of the trestle itself over the river there and the train came barreling along, and they had failed to put a flagman out far enough, only about 500 yards rather than 1,000. So the train was still doing over 30 miles an hour when it reached this gap in the rails. And the engine actually jumped a 42-foot gap, dragged the car with it, but all the other first-class cars were flung, just thrown down into the river valley, smashed to pieces. And uh, the only first-class car that survived was one holding only Dickens, and his friend, Ellen Turnin, his beloved, and her mother. And it was dangling by a single coupling above the drop. So that's traumatic enough. He 
told friends. He kept it secret. He didn't want it known he was traveling with Ellen Turnin. And he refused. The railway wanted to make him a hero and advertise it and give him a whole setting of silver plate at a banquet. And so he actually met with them and said, please keep it secret. But he then, Dickens then, when he got his friend and her mother out of the car, he went down into the valley. And I think the trauma for him was very similar to someone who survived an air crash today. Because even in a time where we think brutality was more common in 1860s England, the dead down there weren't just dead. They were in small pieces. And he tried to help the living, help the dying. And in my novel, it's where he meets a creature called Drood. But in reality, the Staplehurst accident in 9 June 1865 changed Dickens's personality, changed his behavior. He never finished another novel. He quit writing novels for four years. It changed the way he behaved with other people, and it changed his obsessions. Suddenly, his obsession with death and the dying and violence came out. However, it was suppressed before then. He could master it and write about it. But after that, it controlled him. Well, one of the things you point out to us in this book, and I think this is really fascinating, is that London of that time was a necropolis. It was. I mean, when you get a a city of a couple million people in the 1800s where the graveyards were few and far between, just they were just churchyards. And they had the habit, which I've seen in Eastern Europe and Romania, Transylvania and so forth, where, uh, first of all, if you don't keep up the rent on your grave, you get thrown out and your grave's given to somebody else who will pay. But they, when you had to bury someone in one of these terrible little cemeteries, the poor men on burial detail had to, you know, you shovel a foot down in the soil, you're going to run into bodies stacked six high. And you, so to bury somebody, you have to dig through decaying flesh from the last tenants. So it was a big deal to create new cemeteries. So you had crypts, uh, and then beneath that you had the Roman catacombs, and the Romans buried there, and it kept going down and down and down. And beneath all that, there was another subterranean world. So this is what Dickens explores. This reminds me uh, quite a bit. What the, the subterranean portions of this novel really remind me of a H.P. Lovecraft story called The Rats in the Walls, which has these kind of levels beneath levels beneath levels. And, and I wonder if you t- talk to us about the research you did for the London Underground, which is really a fascinating environment in this novel. Well, here's where I tell you how I explored it all with nothing more than a flashlight. But the truth is that, as with other exotic novels, some other exotic novels, uh, I got so involved in the research that I didn't go to the real place. So I spent uh, many months happy with my charts of the subterranean London of the 1850s and reading rather arcane books about subterranean Paris and London of the time and obsession with the underground then. They gave tours in both Paris and for a short time in London of the sewer system. And ladies would ride in the boats. The men tended to walk alongside. And they they actually organized rat hunting expeditions for the very rich, shooting from these boats being pulled along in the underground sewer rivers. So it was a strange era. So my research was... uh, tended to be from books and pamphlets, but there were a lot of important documents being written at the time because of the health crises they had, because of the stench, the great stink of 1858 that drove Parliament out of town. They had to adjourn and move to the country because of the smell. Because um, all of us who have read Dickens' Our Mutual Friend remembers the character who becomes a millionaire because he inherits, he's a servant, but he inherits uh, the dust hills, the dust... uh, 
bins, and dust was their polite word mostly for manure. One of the, the things that would have made it possible for them to go underground was because the stench above ground was so great. Uh, as you were writing this book, tell us a little bit about um, how you got into Wilkie Collins' head and, and what happened to maybe to you as a result. <laughs> well, it was a strange place to spend so many months, and it was a very enjoyable place. Um, but the to ha- to be in any writer's mind to try to be any other writer's is a difficult trip because you have to move from your own imagination to his or hers. And Wilkie's imagination was very powerful. Those who love him know that he was the first of, or at least the preeminent sensationalist novel novelist. His uh, sensationalist novels were about as strong as you could write in those days and still be uh, published publicly, you know, not subterranean publishing for a few fans of erotica or something. And he knew how to shock his readers. But that was a dim reflection of his own imagination, which was truly sensationalist. And as I say, he was a bit of a rake. He, here at the, the, the height of Victorian proper propriety, and behavior with Charles Dickens being the emblem of the happy English family man. And here the man he's hanging out with, uh, Wilkie Collins, is living with one mistress and refusing to marry her. When she finally insists, either marry me or I'm leaving, he not only packs her bags to help her leave, but he finds a husband for her. And then she runs away from the husband, evidently, because she shows up back at his home a year later. But he's living with one mistress whom he refused to marry, and he has another mistress down the street with whom he's having children. And that's who Dickens chose to be with at the time. Well, Dickens himself was a, is a really great character as viewed by Wilkie Collins. And, and this gets to this kind of very interesting thing for me about the jealousy and competition between writers because <laughs> you really mind that for a lot of tension going back and forth. And Dickens himself not only was regarded as well uh, highly, but he thought of himself as great. He, ca- he called himself the inim- inimitable. He did. And he asked others around him to call him that. He had a very healthy uh, sense of self-esteem, we'd say today. He really knew his place in the literary pecking order of England long before he'd actually achieved it, actually. And uh, he didn't allow others to forget it, which is one reason why I loved writing the book. And uh, I'll I'll be honest, I had long, uh, how should I put it, discussions with my editor and even with my agent who wanted me to cut the book way down to get back to what they said really drives the book, which is this scary character, Drood, and the suspense thrill around Drood. And I staked everything. Uh, I, I just put everything behind my argument. Please let it be published as it is, um, because I believe readers will be as interested in the literary discussions between Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins and others. You know, Bulwer Lytton, it was a dark and stormy night, he's there. They'll be as interested in the literary life of these men as they are in uh, anything that frightening, scary monster vein. And so far I've been very lucky because readers seem to indeed enjoy that as much as anything else. This novel really does have a lot of the feel of a, of a Dickens novel <laughs> in the best possible way. Um, and, and But it also has a kind of a little bit of a split personality to it. Um, partway through this novel... Uh, our narrator, Wilkie Collins, tells us things are going to change. And I got the feeling that maybe the first part you, you were wearing your Charles Dickens hat, and the second 
part, you wore your Wilkie Collins hat and really went for the sensationalist. Well, the Wilkie Collins part grows and as his passion grows and his passion for revenge and his jealousy and his confusion about his relationship with Dickens. Um, I once had a wonderful evening in Los Angeles with a um, publisher of a private edition, these beautiful uh, collector's editions of books, who every month for 30 years had met with Ray Bradbury and Robert Block, the author of Psycho, and Stan Freeberg, the great radio comic from the 60s, 70s, and now. And these three men started talking, but especially Bradbury and Stan Freeberg, started talking about the mentors in their life who were also the monsters in their life. And so often a mentor is the monster. And with Bradbury, it was the film director, John Huston, who tapped this young 30-year-old rural fellow to come write uh, the screenplay for Moby Dick and brought him to Ireland, Scotland, wherever Houston's castle was, and then tormented him, drove him nuts for months. And uh, with Stan Freeberg, it was David Merrick, the great Broadway producer. And it was the funniest evening I've ever heard. But it relates directly to Wilkie Collins and Charles Dickens. You love your mentor, but your mentor can be a monster to you. Even a relationship can be. You're so frustrated. You can't achieve that excellence. And, you know, at a certain point, you just decide that the only thing you can do is kill the person. And that's a really, that insight of, one of the things about Wilkie Collins that I really love is he's smart enough to know that he'll never be really good. And that kind of torture, he tries to talk himself up. And so tell us about creating the kind of dips and verves in, in Collins' perceptions of himself and of Dickens, where sometimes he has a very high opinion of himself, and other times he realizes, oh, no, I just, I just can't do it. Talk about creating those as a, you know, a, in the same way that you create a, a thrilling plot with regards to Drood and the mysteries and what's going on underground London. You also create a thrilling plot with the development of literature and, and the literary tensions between these two men. Well, thanks, because I find it interesting. I find it interesting between when I wrote a novel about Ernest Hemingway and his rivalry with Fitzgerald, and the two men loved each other, and Hemingway did tremendous harm to his friend Fitzgerald by bad-mouthing him, by dissing him in public. And it never stops. In every era and every generation, when you get to the top level, those few writers who are greats, who have a chance for immortality, which the rest of us don't, to be quite honest. I mean, I identify with Wilkie very strongly. I know my limits. I'm not going to be read 100 years from now. I could write that to letter to the dear reader of the future. But what I loved was the fact that Wilkie's ups and downs weren't totally dependent on the view of his mentor, Dickens. They were his own, you know, melancholia, his own highs and his own bipolar lows. And right now I'm reading a, on tour I brought with me heavy hardcover, of course, and it's a biography of Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson. And I didn't know how from an early age this afflicted Johnson that he just, he, when he was a teenager almost, he wrote a book about on being an author about how it's all an illusion, how you'll never be the kind of writer you think you'll be, and how it's worth killing yourself, really, because you can't live up to your own expectations. So in Drood, when, uh, when Dickens is being nice to Wilkie, it helps a little but I have a fictional confrontation between the two men at a dinner at a restaurant where Dickens tells Wilkie what he actually thinks of the Moonstone, Wilkie's best-selling super novel that was outselling Bleak House and Mutual Friend and 
which Wilkie shared with Dickens. It's selling this well, and the lines are two blocks long and you know, for the, to get the next installment. And I have Dickens tell Wilkie what Dickens in real life wrote to mutual friends and to other people. I, we know Dickens' secret thoughts about it, but we have no record of him ever telling Wilkie. But on the other hand, we have no record of him not telling Wilkie. Uh, and we know that Wilkie had a big chip on his shoulder when Dickens died. He hardly mentioned it in his own diary. One of the things I think that's really great in this novel uh, is the... Um, you talk about the development of fictional technology. This is a time when these these authors were racing one another to invent the mystery genre. That's right. And we know now Wilkie Collins won the race. When I talk to these Wilkie fans who want to kill me for you know, doing this fictional account of their hero, uh, they always point out the same thing, which is Wilkie Collins is the grandfather of all mystery novels. And his especially... They say, have you read The Moonstone? I admit, yes, I've read The Moonstone. It's the great-grandfather of all mystery detective novels. Everything flows from it, even Sherlock Holmes, blah, 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 blah. And I say, yes. But then if I'm impolitic, I add, but it's because Charles Dickens did not finish his book, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. He was halfway through when he, Dickens, died on 9 June 1870, the fifth anniversary exactly, almost to the hour of the staple horse accident, suddenly died, mysteriously died, I think. And if he'd finished that mystery novel, Charles Dickens, I am convinced, would have been the grandfather of all mystery novelists, and it was the mystery of Edwin Drood, not Wilkie's Moonstone, that would have been the great template for all future mystery and detective novels. I think he would have shown the young upstart exactly how it was to be done. Well, they both based their uh, detective character on the same real-life character. That's Charles Frederick Field, Fielding? Field, yes. Field. Tell us about researching this character, because he is a fabulous character in this book. I really love Field. Yeah, well, I really loved Inspector Bucket in Dickens's Bleak House. And it turns out Inspector Bucket, who comes in late, he's one of the first great detective figures in any literature. I'd say he is the greatest early one. When Inspector Bucket uh, enters Bleak House, the book changes tremendously, and he's just a basic constable inspector for early Scotland Yard. Um, it's actually a little pre-Scotland Yard. But everything from his almost Columbo-like mannerisms. Oh, 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 by the way, just one more question, your lordship. And his mannerism of always putting his finger up to his nose or his ear it's all based on this real policeman who showed Dickens, years before had shown Dickens around underworld London and actually escorted him into dangerous parts of town and had become a little legend on his own, Charles Frederick Field, and who when he left as the first chief, one of the first chiefs of the New Scotland, then the New Scotland Yard, Field opened a private detective agency, which was very unusual, in the 1850s, and became involved as a consultant in some very high-profile murders. And I think Dickens would have done a better job putting the detective at the center of the story than Wilkie Collins did with Sergeant Cuff in The Moonstone. And, and I have Dickens actually tell Wilkie that in this fictional conversation where he says, well, you have this wonderful, wonderful detective, Sergeant Cuff, the, you know, who's, who thinks very well. His uh, radiocination is very strong. But right, rather than solve the mystery, Wilkie, you have him just wander out of the book and go off and breed roses. Uh, in Scotland. Actually, I have him say something that's a little in-joke. Some people know 
Dickens makes a mistake. He says, you have him go off and become a beekeeper. And uh, Wilkie corrects, no, he breeds roses. Uh, that's one thing I have to say, too, is that the uh, to-be-born ghost of Sherlock Holmes hovers heavily over this novel because we, we see all these predecessors. It's like one of the things that's fun is that we're partway down the funnel that ended up creating Sherlock Holmes. Could you talk about uh, the influence of Sherlock Holmes in, in all of this? I mean, he was just about, just around the corner from these two guys, wasn't he? He was. He was, he was you know, engineers, scientists have an idea called steam engine time, I'm sure you've heard of, which is some technology, like a steam engine, is in the air. It will happen. If so-and-so doesn't invent it in this country, then so-and-so in another country will invent it. It's time for a steam engine, or it's time for laser. It's time for flat-screen TVs. There was a time for Sherlock Holmes, and Wilkie certainly contributed to the preparation for Sherlock. He was sort of a John the Baptist once removed. And those Sherlock scholars out there will know everybody else who led up to Sherlock. But I think it's so interesting that a character like Sherlock Holmes not only throws his shadow forward through time for other writers, but throws it backward. I've been speaking with Dan Simmons. His new novel is Drood. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Always a pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.